Hello, this is News of the World, the show that's covering all the news. And the news with a Z, that's the important news. That's the news that you might have read somewhere else, but nobody wanted to discuss with you. But that's what we do. And we, that's Tim Pritlove and Mark Fonseca Rendero, Bicycle Mark in Amsterdam. Hello. Mark. Hello, hello. Hello to all the Whovians out there. <laughs> the Whovians who've just yeah. uh, emanated from their TARDISes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, after... Yeah. Upgrading the computers to Mavericks. <laughs> Mavericks with an S. Yeah, the whole world is full of plural. That's and right. And keeps repeating itself too. That's that's yes. where the plural is coming from. Yes. Yeah, we've been putting plurals on things for a lot of years, and now the rest of the world has caught up. Always on the cutting edge here on News of the World. Newses. So <laughs> what what kind of newses do we have? <laughs> Well, it's a lot of bad news, uh, and we have to start with one of the biggest stories uh, in the world at this point. That would be Typhoon Hian or Haiyan. I haven't been watching the American news. I'm sure they're calling it Haiyan. Uh, it's killed. I mean, if we start with the death part, it's killed 10,000 people. Uh, that's an estimate because, of course, a lot of the damage is still being assessed. And just when you think a typhoon that can I mean, take 10,000 lives is bad enough. Uh, this morning we woke up to news that an earthquake of 4.8 magnitude has struck at least part of the region uh, that's been devastated by the typhoon, specifically this Bohol Island, uh, where actually, I think it was one month ago, there was a 7.3 magnitude earthquake. Uh, in some strange way, this actually... The people who were in that specific island had a slight advantage because they were already... Uh, prepared or at least on high alert after this uh, earthquake. So the, according to reports, they were able to evacuate people more rapidly than other parts of the Philippines that, of course, have been caught to some extent by surprise, at least in terms of the magnitude of this thing. Uh, this was on Friday when the storm hit. And, um, well, it's it's massive. I mean, the the headlines this morning are also about... The British and U.S. military that are sending ships and helicopters for uh, disaster relief. And, uh, you know, this is a story you've heard before, except it's massive. Um, the storm was also heading to Vietnam. It did touch down in Vietnam, I think, Monday morning. But by the time it reached Vietnam, it had weakened somewhat. Uh, people still died, actually, and, and there were still a lot of problems, but not in the high numbers the way it happened in the Philippines. And actually, as as strange uh, things happened, but the storm preparations in Vietnam actually resulted in some deaths. Uh, but but never mind. I mean, really, the, this story is about the typhoon and Philippines struggling to deal with the scale of the damage. Yeah, and the, the, the damage is done by the storm but it's uh, caused by uh, much more than just the storm it's um, all about also a, dis a discussion on on uh, infrastructure and the uh, uh, infrastructure in the philippines is well not up to the standard that's probably necessary to uh, withstand these storms in recent years although we've heard a lot of hurricanes and disasters um actually in areas like the us which have been suffering lots of ha hurricanes recently, uh, improved infrastructure actually helps. Um, well, that's easy to say. Uh, for the Philippines, the, the situation is worsened by the fact that it is a country that's made of so many different islands and now that all the communication lines have broken, um, the biggest uh, airport in that region is destroyed, uh, it's almost impossible to get any help to these people. Yeah, and I mean, you have places in the world where you get hit with, like, as you mentioned, hurricanes in the U.S., uh, and, and they can still really do huge, huge damage. And, 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 but when a place is more prepared, like, say, Japan and earthquakes, I mean, it could still be horrible and devastating, but at least construction is somewhat prepared nowadays, and there are standards. And I think these kind of standards uh, for typhoons are much harder to implement, to be able to afford to construct things in a, in a, a way that can resist the winds and the, the water that comes with a typhoon. It's simply, it, I don't think it really exists in the Philippines. I, I'd be glad to see an example where it does, where um, you know construction architecture is now taking into account typhoons. 
and actually, um, I'd be curious to know the differences between uh, islands in, in terms of uh, the quality of, of and rules when it comes to things being built. I have no idea about that. I still haven't been to the Philippines. Um, there was a possibility, actually, in the coming year, but that's a whole other story. Uh, this is going to be and should be in the headlines for quite some time because recovery and even just looking for people, looking for survivors, digging people out of rubble is going to take a lot of work. And, uh, you know, one of those times where these things that unfortunately governments have built for war can actually be used to save people. And I'm talking about helicopters. I'm talking about these big warships and hospital ships. Um, actually, that's one of my favorite things, probably hospital ships. They're really amazing. And you could bring them in and have a whole floating hospital and, well, but there, uh, that's, there are no up. hospital ships uh, in that area right now, are there? Not as far as I know, and so far, although that might change within even today, the headlines might start to change. So far, they just talk about um, ships that can be used for uh, rescue, search and rescue. But I, I think it takes a little longer. But you could get a hospital ship out there. Um, I don't know the logistics. I suppose they don't move as fast as some of your more modern. Uh, death-wielding uh, devices. Yeah, well, the U.S. is actually moving uh, one of their aircraft carriers to the Philippines, and it's about to arrive there in two or three days. Uh, I think it's called the George Washington. I'm not so sure. Mm. Um, so, well, they have lots of machinery uh, <laughs> uh, on, on, on that deck. Yeah, I mean, th that would be something actually for the future. Uh, of course, these decisions are never made in the right way, but imagine that, like, an, uh, yes, okay, an aircraft carrier, and it's going to have X amount of space for, for hospital beds and, and disaster relief, and you, and you make it a priority when you build your, your warships. I mean, that would be something, and that would be very relevant to the kind of world we live in when, it, when you look at all the disasters that happen and all the times that ships from other countries have to come in to, uh, to help But that's not often the priority when you build these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder, I, I really wonder how, I mean, now it, it has hit um, the Philippines. It could have hit Taiwan, for instance, that's mm. very close to the Philippines in the north, uh, giving the importance for international trade, computer manufacturing, and so on. I uh, wonder what the impact would have been on economy when such a storm hits Taiwan or the coastline of China. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and I mean there have been those disasters that hit hit Taiwan, but it's often earthquakes, but yes, it could have been this typhoon and yeah, and it hits um it hits Vietnam, it hits the Philippines which in the global game of of big money is not as important. Uh I mean Yeah, what to make of that, you know, how all this happens. And of course, there are now a number of articles that will always come out around this time, uh, maybe rightfully so, about what could have been done in terms of disaster preparedness and also global warming and climate change and how, you know, these typhoons are getting stronger and uh, this is not so-called normal uh, and we have something to do with this. So that this will also come as part of this, um, this disaster news. Yeah, interestingly enough, this uh, disaster strikes right the moment at the moment when there's a new climate conference starting in uh -huh. uh, Poland, which uh, might have an influence or it might not. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not totally clear what the impact of global warming on these kinds of storms is. I think the only thing where everybody can agree on at this time is that it's certainly um, helps creating bigger storms that have more impact because the oceans are warmer, store much more energy, and once these storms form, they can amass much more um, energy, much more dynamics than before. So that's what they what's making them bigger. It's not that there are more of those storms. It's not that we have a huge increase in tropical storms somehow. Uh, actually, it's uh, closer to the opposite. So it's not a not an easy equation to 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 solve here, but it might have some impact on this new round of uh, talks that seem to go nowhere all the time. Yeah, 
Yeah, and actually we'll have an item on that on the climate change uh, talks and related uh, coming up. Um, first, I wanted to move to another topic in, in Asia, uh, specifically Bangladesh. Uh, yesterday, I saw the news come out that the government has recognized hijidas as a separate gender, so male, female, and hijida. And they're officially calling uh, hijiras, for, for people who don't know, and actually I had to really uh, educate myself because I didn't know, uh, you might know these people as eunuchs or hermaphrodites. Uh, and of course... They have been around as long as time has existed. Or wait, that's not the right scientific term. Uh, forever. Let's go with that. As long as humans have existed. Um, they, they now get this gender distinction uh, from the government. And the idea is that they will have more rights in the labor market. Um, I mean, they, they, of course, have most rights that, that men or women have. But, of course, they haven't been treated always uh, very fairly. So this is an attempt by the government to ensure some kind of equal treatment. Um, so this is one of these issues. I, I, I found myself in one of these research spirals, kind of like when you get stuck on YouTube and you keep clicking on, I don't know what videos because they appear in the right. <laughs> I found myself uh, tracing back articles, radio documentaries. I found a good one from the BBC about the Hijiras of India. And uh, their stories, uh, just recording their stories, uh, them explaining how, you know, when they were growing up, they realized they were different or right away, of course, because sometimes you have both male and female uh, genitalia or, or something along those lines. So um, this is an old issue in this region, but a very, I would say, a very progressive uh, policy coming from the Bangladesh government, which is actually on its way out. Um, it's amazing that you you get really forward-thinking policy just as governments are about to leave. <laughs> and uh, so this is one of those examples. Um, could could set, I don't know, could maybe set the standard in, in Asia for, for the future. Maybe India would come out with such a, a, a policy. How, how many people are affected by the, I mean... In Bangladesh, we're only talking about I say only. We're talking about 10,000 people officially. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming there are plenty of people who are not official, not on the books. Uh, but uh, it's enough that you know, there has been a which is sort of lobby, you know, an attempt to, to make this matter to the government to do something about it. Uh, I think if you look to India, you have a much higher number. Uh, this tradition of, of you know, hermaphrodites who, who live in their own... Uh, in order to protect themselves, live kind of in their own world. Um, and, and it's a sort of an underworld where you, you can't do every job because you're not allowed, because you're discriminated against. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's this stigma that's attached to what people think is a, a, a man dressed as a woman. Uh, which yeah, may but not un, be the un, case under this name it's not i mean we're not to only talking about a physical condition that that some people uh, have it's more it's more it's part of it but it's more than this it's a more a, a, a culture a transgender culture that's going on here right from what i understand the basis was was actually something physical but i think you're right i think it's it's uh it's much more than that um and much more complicated than that so i would i would go with yes i would go with yes in terms of your question um but yeah it's it's an amazing issue I, i'll put a link to this bbc documentary uh from india mm -hmm. which just has you know something actually that i would enjoy doing just interviews with people talking about their lives what their parents thought growing up and did to to either protect them or or help them um it's it's impressive and it's impressive that this policy comes from bangladesh i, w I might have expected a state in india to uh, to do something like this maybe they already have and actually i don't know it so that's also something, uh, maybe the, the comments in News of the World can, can bring something like that forward. That would be helpful. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on these policies. And I really had a whole education in Hijira because when I first saw the word, I did not know what that meant. And, and the Bangladesh government was actually clear in their announcement <laughs> that from now on, even in English, we will call them Hijiras. And it's spelled with a J and all these specifics. So this is really setting the standard, at least for that country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> ah. So uh, that's that. And we'll, we'll keep an eye on news from that region on this topic. Um, coming up next. Yeah, Middle oh, East. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't do that much uh, Israel and settlement news, oftentimes because it's too complicated. I, I, I find myself getting lost in the back and forth. Uh, but I saw this item and I find it interesting. Um, you know, Israel, the headline has been, Israel is evicting or moving, pushing Bedouins. You know, of course, Bedouins are always moving anyway, but um, moving from land in what's been described as southern Israel, and the plan is to build uh, new settlements, and they're calling it like a specific uh, Jewish settlement. But I think that's implied anyway, anytime you build a new settlement. Um, but this is on the heels of, over the summer, the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, passed a Bedouin resettlement bill, which was supposed to grant rights and even compensation to Bedouins in southern Israel who have been there for ages and were apparently either getting moved or well, some kind of more steady uh, status. But uh, this plan, regardless, is now being sort of pushed aside or maybe used for a resettlement plan where they plan to, ba well, basically build, uh, build settlements. And this is one of those classic uh, issues. It's become such a, a, a divisive topic that it's actually made it to the Israeli Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, and that's another interesting and important part to this story because the Israeli cabinet, the government, is actually moving to build the community, to build the, the settlement and remove the Bedouins, but the court case hasn't been decided yet. So really, they're supposed to wait for the decision from the Supreme Court, but I mean, look, it's a Netanyahu government. They act with a lot of nerve and not always waiting or, or you know, they, they do things. They really do things. And so they're, they're moving forward, uh, which a lot of uh, critics are calling illegal, um, racist, because of the way Bedouins are looked at as somehow less than Israeli citizens, although they are Israeli citizens. Um, some people say this is a, a media campaign uh, to sort of gain sympathy for Bedouins and actually that they're, they're supposed to be moving around anyway, that these people are lazy and, and <coughs> it's not... What, what I don't understand is, where are they now? I mean, what 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 are we talking about? I mean, if there was a resettlement bill, what was the plan to put them where from where? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, because the the region is called Negev. Negev. Originally, that's, yeah, that's the the big uh, desert in the south of uh, Israel. Yeah, and so and if you have Bedouins, to my knowledge. Uh, it's not people who are always in exactly the same place. So I think this is a region that, that you know, it, it has traditionally been people move around, but in yes. this general region. So I think this might also add to the the debate over whether or not they deserve any further rights besides uh, I, I, it's, it's, they've been identified as citizens. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, this is probably another case of people who have fallen victim to where borders are put that weren't there long ago, as so often happens uh, in many parts of the world. So I think that's also something that's going on. But in terms of like why they would need compensation, I think it's be for for settlements that have already been built and other method um, uh, steps taken by the Israeli government to to move them around for different reasons. I mean, you know, the other thing is. They're not going to have a lot of power in the in the Knesset. I mean, there are representatives, of course, of the Arab community, the Israeli Arab community. But in the end, it's I, I believe that people involved in the building of settlements have a lot of political power from the right, from the center right, um, from the current cabinet. So the, Bedouins lose out. You know, they're not as powerful. I mean, they're probably hardly represented. So it's amazing that it's at the uh, Supreme Court level, and that actually shows you that this particular uh, example is, is strong enough, has enough public outcry that it, it matters. Because I think if, if they really were um, disrespected, unknown, <laughs> invisible, then they wouldn't even make it to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I can't tell is how much of a chance they have, really, or is this just a symbolic case? Um, or symbolic, or just going through the motions. Really. I find it interesting because the, the Negev is a really very mildly uh, populated uh, area. I mean, it's super hot. It's basically the uh, Israeli variant of the uh, of the um, uh, Sinai, 
the other side um, in uh, Egypt. So it's it's really a desert. It's it's very hot. Uh, not that many settlements at all. There are just a few spots here and there. Um, the main Israeli settlements are mostly ending at uh, Be'er Sheva, which is like the um, yeah the biggest town. Uh, at the border of uh, uh, Negev, and then there's just desert, desert, desert for a lo very long time until you get to the Red Sea uh, and Eilat, which is sort of the tourist, uh, southern tourist <laughs> spot for Israelis. Um, so I, I don't know why they're pushing out the Bedouins who are moving um, around in this desert at all, but... Yeah. There's um there's been a lot of links to a international fund. Uh, I think it's called the Jewish National Fund that has a lot of supporters in the United States. Although you don't have to throw a rock very far in Israel to find a a project that's partially supported <laughs> or funded by people in the United States. Um, <laughs> yes. But um, it, I think it's called Blueprint Negev or or something like that, and it it's this project aimed at building settlements. So. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of a construction company. I mean, only they call it a fund. Okay. And the idea is to have settlements and, and accommodate them. I guess it'll be like Florida. You know, you just put air conditioning everywhere. And even though it's a <laughs> terrible place to live, you just go, it's okay. You've got air conditioning. <clears throat> yeah. Or maybe it's just the few spots that are uh, worth exploring anyway in the negative that, you know, those were the areas the Bedouins probably moved for. And now the Israelis want to take this from them. Oh, them. also... Very valuable in terms of solar energy. Apparently, the the in terms of attractiveness for future solar use, uh, this is the the place uh, if they can just get the land and get use of it. Yeah, but there's really enough land for, to to do that. That shouldn't be the problem. Okay, anyway, mm. let's uh, mm. move on. All right. Uh, next on the list. Oh yeah, this one from the United States. Uh, I saw this in the San Francisco. Bay Guardian? No, San Francisco newspaper. <laughs> the uh, A charter school. So that's like one of these semi-private, mostly private, semi-public schools. Uh, Oakland Charter School. They don't say which one because they don't want to be specific. But they're going to test and use the gunshot detection system. And I was going to say it's the first one of its kind, but it's not true. Uh, it is the first one being used in a school. Uh, let's see. How to explain... The system will detect when a gunshot goes off. And it's, you know, so it's like you have to imagine this, just like in the movies, a bank of computers, many, many screens in front of you. And when a gunshot goes off, it will detect it and it will do a bunch of things all at once. Uh, it will call alert. the police. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You can almost guess this. You don't have to read, do you? No. It, it sends an instant message. I'm not sure what system it's going to be using to every classroom uh telling them to lock down and actually this was uh, an issue in a lot of the school shootings in the past where you know people should actually stay in their room or lock the door but they they don't know what's going on so they they do different things uh so it'll be a lockdown message um that would happens? probably mean that all the mobile phones uh of the schoolers would be registered and assigned yes. to classes and so on yeah or at least teachers yeah yeah Mm -hmm. But I don't think this is enough because I think you have to have it like on a wall. Because if it's in your pocket, maybe you don't, you're teaching, so you don't look. But if it appears on the wall, you need like a, an instant message wall. Yeah, that's probably wall, uh, true for the teacher, probably not so true for the right. schoolers. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it also will <sighs> send, let's see, when it alerts the police, it automatically sends them a floor plan of the school. And if a second shot is fired, it can sort of track where and where the shooter is moving i don't know big promises for this system um it costs fifteen thousand uh for setup is that just fifteen thousand i really have to check this um and ten thousand per year in fees of course for looking at the screens and what <laughs> i found interesting the system this one in particular is called shot spotter which sounds like an app <laughs> on your phone um, back it now on Kickstarter. Here's what. <laughs> no, no, no. Here's what caught my attention. Um, you know, in this article, it says it would be the first one uh, used in a school, of course, because of this whole context of school shootings in the U.S. But it says maybe in a sort of passing way. But it says this is similar to systems that are being used on the streets in Oakland and San Francisco, and then it says, and in dozens of cities across the country. 
And I didn't know this. I'm not that surprised, but I didn't know that gunshot detection systems are being used in cities in the United States. I've heard about the, you know, these CCTV cameras that can detect hostile behavior or something like London tries to have. You are in a bad mood. Move along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you swing your arm too fast, cops <laughs> jump out. Yeah. Um, Smile like, more. Gunshot detection systems in cities. Like that's, I didn't know. <clears throat> I'm impressed. Yeah, which, which I think basically means they are listening to you or everyone all the time because this is an acoustic system. You know? oh. There's no... I mean, I couldn't imagine that this is somehow related to any other sensoring than microphones. I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it also has to do actually with... Um, I think it's oh, air Ultrasonic. monitoring the, 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 the content air of pressure. the air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Detect the pressure changes. Oh, chemical, uh, chemical and infrared sensors. heat. An infrared heat. Okay, so it's a multiple of this, but it's definitely uh, including <laughs> microphones, isn't it? <laughs> uh, they don't mention the microphones. Uh, in, of course, in the <laughs> because it's you know it's a sensor for gunshots. <laughs> well. Because actually the, the, the microphone part would be problematic. I mean, maybe it's finely tuned, but what if someone slams, okay, not slam a door, but throws a chair or makes any sound that is kind of at oh, the because, level of a gunshot? Because uh, a gunshot has a very specific acoustic footprint that you can actually analyze. And, and I would assume that's what these systems are uh, doing. You know, you just can't imitate a gunshot not in its pressure, not its in its uh, uh, f- sonic form. I mean, maybe you could play back gunshots, and that's the point where you probably need another sensor <laughs> that you're not just uh, falling victim to somebody playing, uh, I don't know, public enemy songs with built-in gunshot sounds. Um, yeah. So I don't know if these systems work. Uh, it's I don't even want to write on the wall that this is another part of the big conspiracy <laughs> to you know uh, put more sensors in public and 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 read your thoughts and whatnot. But the main problem I see here is again they are turning to the wrong part of the problem. You know this is just like oh now we know that somebody has shot a gun. Yeah. <laughs> what about doing something that this is not happening in the first place? You know. <laughs> Wait a minute, Tim. You want us to ask why <laughs> and find yes. out bef- what yeah, what's, think. what's wrong with students? Think, please. Oh, no, but we could make an app. Yeah, we could make apps, and we can send messages, and we can try to to we, we we pretend to do something. I could send you a whole floor plan. Yeah. But I'm, I'm pretty sure in order to finance uh, these systems, they had yeah. to withdraw uh, money from programs where psychologists uh, actually help schoolers to get around their problems. Well, the good news is this initial system, no charge to the school. Oh, yeah, of course, because <laughs> the first fix is always free. <laughs> what? It's a public service. <laughs> first fix is always free. There you go. No, yeah, for now, this system didn't cost the school uh, any money, but as they advertise, they're already saying how much it would cost for schools to do it. And actually, a lot of schools in the United States uh, that are at least commenting on this story, people in charge of schools, are saying, uh, actually, many would rather focus on the why, the what's, you know, how are students doing, invest more money in counseling and communication with students uh, to know what's, you know, what's bothering them, instead of just detecting gunshots and treating this like some kind of a military exercise. Uh, but you know that it's America, and there are always people who want yeah All apparently of- there's some some value to to know um ten seconds earlier that everybody is dead. Oh, yeah, and, and all the confusion that happens. I mean, that is an issue. I mean, one person in this article it probably works for the company um, says you have a fire alarm which and you have a fire procedure which helps when it happens, and so you should have a uh, <laughs> Gunshot yeah. alarm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, what about a bullshit alarm and, uh, <laughs> and stupidity alarm? That would be helpful too. 
It'll be an alarm that detects the scent. <laughs> yeah, it detects bullshit. Oh, I see. Oh, that was totally bullshit. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's going off right now. All right. Well, that is the story from the school shooting uh, universe in the United States. Onwards to the environment, and actually, we already alluded to the, uh, I think, upcoming, uh, what is it, climate meetings in Poland? What's that happening? November 11th. November 11th. Wait a minute. That's already starting. Okay. Because today is the 12th. Uh, This one uh, came out of um, some recent scientific research comparing data, and it turns out, okay, remember when we were kids, some of us, and there was the, all the concern about the ozone layer? No one yes. talks about the ozone layer anymore, but back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a big deal. It and was. Yeah, and there was the, the Montreal Protocol, which is actually, I didn't know this, considered one of the most effective protocols ever. Never mind your, your Berlin Protocol. I don't know if that exists. But Montreal Protocol was big, and it was enacted in 1987. It was meant, at the time, to do something about the Earth's thinning ozone layer, right? Well, it turns out that it had the unintended benefit of actually slowing down the rate of global warming since the 90s. I mean, it's not a huge surprise, but statistically, and and when it comes to looking at the data, it's impressive, they say. Um, It basically shows that, uh, yeah, in in reducing these chlorofluorocarbons, the CFCs, which as a kid, I started looking at all spray bottles and going, (gasps) evil, spray (laughs) bottles are evil. Uh, oh, yeah. And this it and this was work. the era of hairspray. Mm-hmm. So I would look at all hairspray bottles and be like, no, no, hairspray bad. And so in reducing the um, amount of CFCs in the air, uh, it actually, well, in a, this is the simple me explaining it way, um, led to slowing down of uh, uh, global warming. On the other hand, of course, this same study points out the fact that it's uh, starting to move very quickly again. Uh, because of all the stuff you've heard when it comes to uh, increased amount of uh, carbon emissions coming out of well, all corners of the world, uh, especially as everybody gets a car, and not only. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a pure luck situation because they didn't intend for it to happen, but it actually came uh, or it happened as a result of the Montreal Protocol. The article also points out that even the Kyoto Protocol, which was supposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, wasn't as successful as, as the Montreal Protocol of 87. So the, the sad thing is this means the most progress we've made in reducing uh, greenhouse gases were actually done when we weren't trying or when we were trying to do something else. <laughs> That's um, really strange. Yeah, it also yeah. had a huge impact on the production on refrigerators around the world. So oh, yeah. by... Uh, changing uh, the chemicals inside uh, refrigerators that had a huge impact in this. And it was really uh, successful. Right now, I think the ozone layer is mostly... Um, I, I don't know if it has recovered completely, but it's been on a very good trajectory. Uh, so I think the, the, the core problem is gone and uh, it has a lot of amazing. impact. It's really amazing. I'm it impressed. is, yeah. That shows that things can actually change when hmm. people finally make up their mind. But on the other hand, it's also in those times the uh, overall human system on this planet was slightly easier to manage. You know, it had uh, much less um, capitalism. <laughs> around the planet you know it was mostly focused on the US and Europe and right now we're dealing with the problem that China and so many other countries you know are just beginning uh, to you know approach this phase of oh uh, now we are rich too and we want to have all those fancy uh, things all the others have been uh, playing with for decades mm-hmm. and that's why what it's making uh, so complicated if you look at the news in uh, in China, in this town, it was a town called again, Hunai, I forgot it, you know, where they have trouble with the smog. Uh, the weather was cold, they, they turned on uh, the, the heating factories, and then uh. they had all this smog, and you can't see anymore. It's like you can see three three meters wide. That's, you know, all you can see. Uh, yeah. It's disgusting. People are, uh, are suffering uh, 
from big health problems because of this. Um, yeah, the city is Harbin. Harbin, that was it. Right, yeah. And <laughs> interestingly enough, even the surveillance technology uh, can't catch up. You know, all those cameras are uh, able to Clark. look through fog, but they are not able to look through smog with all the pollution, pollution, all those small particles in, in, in it. So this is already going to a, yeah. a, a level to a degree that that I mean, in Europe. This would be totally impossible, you know. I, I don't really know what's going on in China that that they it have, can happen. Yeah, yeah. That, that can actually happen. You know. Yeah, no, no, there's a difference. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the yeah, so interesting. I guess we'll have maybe within a week some some words at least about the uh, the current uh, climate treaty negotiations going on in Warsaw. Uh, maybe we should dispatch a correspondent. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We don't have any. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, we could need some. Let's send uh, Johnny. We're sending Johnny out to Warsaw. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> since we're talking about climate change, and, and in this case, it was based on some data and research, uh, my news source of the week is going to be climatecentral.org. Mm. Um, and I actually haven't used climatecentral.org so much, but as I went through it uh, this week because of this uh global warming slash ozone layer news, I realized that there, here we have this uh, nonprofit uh, news source using journalists who have been writing about science uh, extensively, so very experienced, and also scientists. So you have this one half that does the research, scientific research articles, and the other half that does the more writing for the public, and they sort of go together. Um, that's their thing, right? Explaining the science to the public. Their specialty is indeed climate change and, and issues of global warming. Um, I looked at their funders. So they're considered a 501c3, which is a nonprofit, uh, getting donations from an amazing list, uh, good or bad, of really big names like Google, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy, the U.S. Army, uh, mm -hmm. the Rockefeller Foundation, University of Tennessee, the World Bank. Even Northrop Grumman, who make weapons. Uh, so it's a very confusing list that might lead one to say, ah, these are really mainstream uh, institutional type uh, researchers. But the research they do seems interesting enough, so I'm willing to recommend them as a news source. But yes, taking into account as I read them that they've got the support of the very powerful, in the, especially in the American context. Uh, but, you know, maybe they don't get interfered with. They just do their reporting. And maybe a lot of these organizations would like to have some actual accurate uh, news reporting on, on the situation of things like global warming instead of just burying the information all the time. So uh, maybe it's not a bad thing that they have these this list of funders. But I was really impressed and sort of depressed with this list. <laughs> what made it so both. depressing for you? Well, you, if you want your science reporting to be independent of any company's influence, then ideally you want nothing to do with the companies. Yeah. But, okay, you need money, especially scientific research. I mean, it takes time. So you got to get paid to be able to survive and, and live. And so I understand to, want, to some extent how you, you need the support from somewhere. And hopefully, you know, they never get a phone call from... Uh, the U.S. Army saying, you know, don't talk bad about firing of missiles for the environment, you know. But I guess hopefully they don't get such calls and there is a separation and it is just a donation. And uh, so that's why I say it's both impressive because they have so much support at such a high level and depressive, <laughs> depressive, depressing um, because, you, yeah, you'd never want to be associated with the powerful of this world uh, to stay independent. Like news of the world. Yes. Or like uh, you, the citizen reporter. It's true. Who it's true. is trying. Uh, trying to uh, raise funding uh, this time. I think that's something we should uh, focus on here for sure. the end of the show. So you want, you, wanna make, you want to make holiday in Dubai. That's, that's actually what you want, right? 
Well, my work is always like a holiday, so I'm not going to lie about how much <laughs> I enjoy collecting <laughs> stories. Uh, but yes. no, no, sir. No, I've got work to do. But mm-hmm. I need your help. No. Um, so I, I've launched a new Kickstarter uh, campaign. It's actually one year since the Arab Artists uh, campaign. So I really wanted to do something this year. I wanted it to be something that I know I can do. I didn't want something that I wasn't sure. I mean, it's good to set lofty goals. But uh, this is something I realized years ago that I could do and I would like to do. And that is um, in my... I've been to Dubai four times. Uh, and I've spent probably only like... Th- three weeks maximum in my life there. But my favorite thing has always been to talk to the people who make the city run. And you know about these people. We've covered a few stories here and there. Uh, I certainly follow stories from the migrant community of Dubai, the people that make the city run. So they're, yes, the taxi drivers, my, my favorite group. They're also the they're the cleaners of these hotels, the people who serve your food, you name it, they do it. And they're mostly from um, Asia. We're talking India with an amazing amount of people, uh, so much so that they actually started like a, a pension fund now for Indians working in uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, but you also have people from Pakistan, the Philippines, um, Bangladesh, and then you get the um, from the Asia and Arab world, um, Afghans, uh, Egyptians, lots of Egyptians, especially with what's been going on in Egypt. Uh, so you have all these different groups of people that have come to Dubai over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, and they're, they're sending their money home. They're not there with their whole family. And I've been fascinated by the the stories that I get to hear, especially in the taxi cabs. And I want to record them. Uh, I want to collect them. I want to make it like my full time job while I'm there because, you know, when I've been there, I'm usually busy with something else. So I take two or three rides and I get a life story. I get, um, you know, an Afghan guy talking about what it was like in Afghanistan 10 years ago. Um, actually, some people don't even talk about the past. They talk about the present and where they'd like to go and why. And I find these kind of stories amazing. Um, one of my most favorite audio journalists from, from history is Tony Schwartz. And he did this in New York in the 60s. And his recordings are awesome to listen to. These sort of New York taxi drivers just telling you, telling you about life, what they, what they would do if they could, where they've been. So I want to do this in Dubai. I think that Dubai is the, of course we know it's like a unique place, but I think it's a, a place that hasn't been heard from in this context. And I want to, I, I know I can do it and I want to sort of do it. So I'm hoping to do it in December or, or January, depending on how this funding goes. From, from what I heard, most well, at least I'd, I'd say more than 50% of the New York taxi drivers can actually speak English. Uh, what is the situation in Dubai? <laughs> How would um, you deal with language uh, problems? Thankfully, uh, language problems shouldn't be an issue because keep in mind that this city thrives on uh, foreign foreign guests, especially in terms of money from the West. So every cab driver needs to speak English. Now, the difference is uh, if you take the Pakistani, Indian, even Bangladesh, you don't, I don't meet that many Bangladesh cab drivers, but surely they exist. They all speak English because they, they grew up with it to some extent yeah, okay. and they use it on a daily basis. Trickier will be Egyptian... Um, well, Afghan has never been a problem, but Egyptian cab drivers, for example, I've heard of Iraqi cab drivers. I would love to meet them. I've been talking with Baghdad Brian about making sure that I do. Maybe we have some numbers. And the problem there is going to be that maybe they speak English just enough for driving a cab, and maybe they don't tell a story. Yes. Now, if that happens, then I'm probably out of luck. Uh, I mean, I can bring a friend who will do translation, but that changes the dynamic of the of the podcast, I think. I'm not against translations. I like them, but I think that there's uh, it's different. So my uh, focus here is on the the English speakers who who tell a story and i'm and I'm gonna learn very quickly as I sit in the cab if this is a person that's gonna talk to me. Um, or if I'm going to never take a ride with this person again. Because if it's someone who I, I, I realize will talk, can talk, then I'm going to come back to that taxi and I'm going to you know, see where it goes next ride and sort of develop this over time. Is this uh, going to be a part of citizenreported.org or, or are you going to set this up separately somehow? My intention is that it goes on citizenreporter.org. 
Uh, and then I want to also write about this um, at least once in a, in a big way. And I'm not sure for what publication yet. I still have my contacts at The Guardian, but I'd like to do... I'd like to do for someone else. I'd like to do, to publish this somehow. Um, but uh, right now the plan is for Citizen Reporter and specifically for the people who support the campaign. You know, the, I want them to benefit first and foremost. Um, and the, for the first time, maybe something more for a closed audience. Uh, you know, if you support me, then I, you're going to get the the daily summaries. You're going to get the inside information. I got an email from Saudi Arabia, someone saying... I'd love to hear your raw footage. And I said, I will give you my raw footage if you support the project, but I'm not telling you any names and I'm hiding all personal information of the drivers because I don't know who you are and what you want with the drivers. Mm-hmm. And he wrote back saying like, no, you're so right. No, no, no. I don't want that information. I don't want to harm anyone. But I just love having the, the raw stuff and not just the final polished product. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that's part of the benefits of supporting. And that person immediately supported me with a nice donation, as, as you have, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, but of course. I noticed that yesterday. Um, so that's one of those questions, right? You know, with podcasting and specific projects, like, can you keep it completely open to the public? If you, but, you know, if you crowdfund something, then there should be benefits for the people who are really involved and, and backing you. So this is your first real Kickstarter uh, project because the last time you did it together with Christopher Leiden, um, or did yeah, I this miss is my anything? First, no, you're right. This is my first solo project, which, which is a lot different. You know, when I had Christopher Leiden last year, uh, we had his supporters and his supporters throw down larger amounts of money than my supporters. Um, and that's not, you know, good or bad. It just works different. Uh, so I have to watch this Kickstarter. Kickstarter is always a tricky thing or Indiegogo, any of these, because of course you have, uh, that 25 to 30 days. So in the beginning, like everything on the internet, it's exciting, and you're you're it's it's moving people are sharing but the hard part is going to be week two you know oh, week uh, two is boring week three is boring it's just the first <laughs> and the last week so i've actually anything to <laughs> this is really concerning me you know we, yeah just we, stay cool oh okay <laughs> stay cool daddy i'm on it you just stay cool that's the best way to deal with it i guess yeah. yeah. So I, I've got I've got my local support. Uh, it's a journalist. I don't know if I can reveal his or her name, so I won't yet. But um, I've had their help for some months. We've been talking about this. I brought it up to them. Actually, we met in in Dubai uh, years ago, and we've been talking about taxi drivers for some time. And I kept saying, you know, I'd love to record their stories. And this person kept saying, "Come here, stay for a while." Uh, you could do it. You know, I've been I've been secretly <laughs> wanting to record these stories for a long time. So I have support on the ground, which is going to help me in terms of a place to stay, even some names before I get there so that I can sometimes have people who already know what's going on. Because it's going to be tricky with getting in a cab and either saying or not saying, you know, I'm recording. Uh, because this guy, you know, Tony Schwartz, although it was the 60s, He often recorded people and people didn't even know it. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, malicious. It wasn't to hurt them. It was more just their beautiful mm-hmm. stories of, of, or singing or all kinds of things that used to happen. <laughs> He has a whole collection, Tony Schwartz, of kids on the streets of New York explaining the games they play. And they have a whole different array of street games. And he just, he just recorded them. He just talked to kids. I mean, these are simple things, but I think they're beautiful things. So I'm also getting these messages from people saying like, why don't you go see the construction workers of Dubai? They live like, like slaves. And I get it. And I'm going to talk about these issues and I'm going to learn about them secondhand, but I'm not walking to a construction site, you know, with a microphone and going, hi guys, <coughs> tell me about you. You know, that's not what I'm going <laughs> to be most useful too. at. <laughs> yeah. It could be dangerous. And, yeah. And, and, And so in, 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 not, so in your Kickstarter description, you're talking about December, but uh, you're not uh, fixed to that date. So it could be January. It could be January. Basically, I will book my ticket when I'm more than halfway with the funding. I have to be careful because if I'm going to book my ticket early and I don't have all the funding yet. So um, it's either December or January. But, but yeah. Kickstarter is uh, all or nothing. I mean, if you're not making your goal, <laughs> you're not getting nothing, right? That's correct. That's correct. Why It's didn't you go for Indiegogo, which has... 
Uh, honestly, if one year from now I do another project, I might try Indiegogo, but the mm-hmm. basic reason is um, I saw what happened last year with Kickstarter with our campaign for Arab artists, and it was a great response, and I figured I want to find these people again, and Kickstarter seems more widely used. That's what people say anyway, and it still feels that way. So I wanted it as easy as possible for people who um, who could and might support. Although I, I think the differences are less and less. I mean, how many, you know, if you could break it into percentages, what have you more often used in your life, like a Kickstarter project or Indiegogo? For me, it's like I've probably supported three Kickstarters and one Indiegogo in the last year. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, may- maybe Christopher Leiden can put a final update on the Arab Artists in a Revolution campaign to point to your new uh, project that might be helpful. I have to ask that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's the tricky part, too. Working with Christopher, I mean, he's a man of a certain age, and he's not into all the technology. That was part of what I brought to the team. Mm-hmm. So the fun part is now, this is mine. Like, I can access this. I can use all the tools that are available. Um, and it was different with him because he has control of that. I didn't. So now I get to do the updates, although I'm going to be very careful. I don't want to abuse it. I don't want to <laughs> send you too yeah, many sure. newsletters. So <laughs> I'm excited to be able to have this access. Even I'm taking note of specific people's interests that I know of or that have mentioned so that I can write to them separately or, you know, really sort of I'm your custom journalist in the field. Or, I'm sorry, for Dubai, I'm not calling myself a journalist to be careful with the government. I'm a, uh, I'm a reporter. I'm an audio recorder. A storyteller. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, if Mark. the Dubai government did, did stop me or arrest me, that would just make for another interesting story. So <laughs> uh, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> okay, All Mark. Right. That's yeah. it. Let's that is it. We will be back uh, next week, right? We're all we're I think so. All right. And uh, thanks for the enthusiastic comments as always and all your support on the social medias. And we will catch you next week for another News of the World. Bye-bye. That's right. Bye.